0: Hello and welcome to episode 91 of A flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through the history of this Nordic Kingdom. Ready to continue our journey through the wars and political chaos that is the end of the 15th century in Sweden are your two hosts, me, Chris, and sitting across from me, my co-host, Orsa.
1: Yes, hello and welcome back. We've been on a bit of a break and we're so happy to be back. I guess if you're not listening to these episodes as they come out, then the break is by the by because all the episodes will just be there in your feed. But if you are listening as this is published in the beginning of December 2023, you'll know that we took November off and didn't publish any new episodes that month to instead focus on catching up on some research and writing. Which is what we've done, and now we're very excited to pick up where we left off with Karl Knutson Bunde's death in 1470. And to make up for our absence, this is going to be a relatively long episode.
0: Yeah, it was a bit of a debate. We could have maybe turned this into two episodes, but we thought we'd make one long one in set. But before we go back to that timeline, as always, it's time for our Swedish Phrase of the Week. And almost like always, uh, this was suggested to us by our long-time listener and Swedish Phrase contributor Magnus.
1: The phrase this week is Liten hemd är också hemd, sa bonden och på grannens gris. So that translates to English as Little revenge is also revenge, said the farmer and spat on the neighbour's pig.
0: Okay, yeah, I've definitely not heard that one before, but just looking at it, it, uh, it makes me think, you could say it just the shortened version, like, little revenge is still revenge, like, uh, Ingen Cooper Isen, like, no cow on the ice. I don't even remember the the end of the Ingen Cooper Isen one, because nobody says it.
1: Yeah, true. I have to admit that this isn't a phrase I've heard or used myself, really, uh, but Magnus suggested it. Maybe it's more common in the part of Sweden where he lives. Sometimes these things are a bit based on dialect or kind of common use in different places. But it basically means that if you want to get back at someone, even doing something small is also a way of getting revenge. But at the same time, it also points out that the fact that exerting revenge for these things rarely leads to anything productive anyway, like spitting on your neighbor's pig, It might feel good to do something if you want to get back at your neighbour for whatever reason. But spitting on their pig is really not helpful in any way or just makes it worse, really. It's a bit pointless.
0: Well, I'd say for the pig, uh, it makes it a little bit worse because it's getting spat on. But um, maybe it could just roll in the mud and get rid of it.
1: But thank you, Magnus, for the suggestion. And if, like Magnus, you have a suggestion for a Swedish phrase you'd like us to talk about on the podcast, let us know either by getting in touch on social media or sending an email to sweden at gmail.com. In fact, someone who did send us an email recently was Clifford Anderson from the US, or rather it was his granddaughter Cara who sent the email on Clifford's behalf. It's quite a long message because Clifford had a lot to tell us about his life as the son of immigrants from Swedish-speaking Finland, but we'll summarize it for you. And we hope Clifford won't mind us letting you know that we are pretty sure he is our oldest listener at the age of 93 years young
0: which is amazing. Hello Clifford, Uh, that's very cool that you uh, managed to get in touch with us and we'll briefly summarize the amazing story you told us and uh, it's basically that Clifford's parents ran a rooming house which is uh, you know basically a boarding house in Chicago when he was young in the 1930s and and this was when a lot of immigrants from Sweden and Finland would come through and they would pass through the boarding house as they tried to start their new life in the U.S. and, and also at the same time facing unemployment during the great depression and many of the immigrants would work hard and send money back to sweden and finland to try and have their families come and join them but since it was tough times here in the nordics in the 30s as well the money that was sent sometimes just had to stay in sweden and finland to help the families here and the families weren't able to join their fathers husbands brothers sisters whoever in the united states and so as a result, unofficial relationships between the immigrant men and second wives in the US were sometimes struck up. And Clifford says the coffee pot was always kept warm in the rooming house and the people living there would sometimes sit together and sing the song "Helsa, dem der Hemmer. And Clifford himself spoke Swedish until he started school and still remembers the words to a very well-known Swedish prayer for children, which is good som harver barn and share."
1: Clifford also remembers the men from the rooming house coming into his family's living room to listen to the radio when, in 1938, Joe Lewis won the prize fight against Max Schmeling on Knockout. He says that, along with Jesse Owens' four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics, this was really a blow to the Nazi idea of the superior master race. I find it amazing to think that we have a listener who was around then and remembers all of this. Like we mentioned before, Clifford's parents were Swedish-speaking Finns. His father, Viktor Andersson, sadly died when Clifford was seven years old. He had only just emigrated to the US when he was drafted and sent to France to fight in World War I. Clifford's dad, that is. But he survived, came back to the US, got a job in the copper mines in Montana, met Clifford's mother, Anna, and they moved to Chicago.
0: Clifford was kind enough to share loads of information and recommendations for books to read when it comes to the life of Swedish and Finnish immigrant communities in the US. And we'll, of course, talk much more about Swedes and uh, Swedish-speaking Finns emigrating to North America as it comes up in our timeline. But Clifford's email was such a nice and very personal account of that part of the history, we just couldn't wait to share it with you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Clifford, for sharing your memories with us. It is so interesting to hear about how people who emigrated from Sweden and Swedish-speaking Finland kept their culture and language alive in various ways. It's been a pleasure to exchange emails with you and your granddaughter, and thank you for letting us summarize your initial email on the podcast. Who knows, we might cover some of this in a special episode, as it takes us a while to get to the emigration period in the regular timeline.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Clifford. Thank you, Kara, for helping your grandfather write the emails. And yeah, we'll see what happens about that special episode. Uh, might not be very soon, but it'll certainly be before when we reach there in the, the general timeline.
1: And also Clifford mentioned the song Hälsa Domda Hemma. Ever since I read that in the email, that song has been stuck in my head. It's quite a sentimental, saccharine little song, but it's also quite sweet. It's about longing for family that stayed behind in the country you left, which... I think it's something that a lot of people can still relate to. You can look it up on YouTube if you like. We'll write the name in the episode description so you know how it's spelt.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we can find a link to YouTube as well and find a good version of it to link to.
1: That is clever.
0: Uh, but now it's time to head a little further back than the emigration to North America and pick up our timeline in the 1470s in Sweden. Karl und Bunda, or KKB as we've called him, that three-time king and all-round tough guy, is dead and sitting by his side is his nephew Stan Stewart. And uh, because KKB was such a big and interesting character, we sort of did a bit of a summary of his life at the end of the last episode and talked about the significance of him in the story. So if you are listening and you uh, forgot a little bit about what KKB got up to, uh, there's that at the end of the last episode.
1: Stan Sture, on the other hand, was born sometime in the 1430s. Like with a lot of people in this time period, we don't know exactly when, because his date of birth was never recorded. But he's in his 30s at this point. He was born into the Swedish High Nobility, his dad, Gustav Sture, died when Sten Sture was a child, and his mother, Brigitta Stensdotter Bjelke, remarried another nobleman who served as commander of several important castles in Sweden.
0: This meant that Sten Sture grew up close to the political top, when he enters our story now in the 1470s, he's already been around for several important political events, including the Battle of Haraka in 1464 when a Swedish peasant army led by a bishop defeated King Christian's forces. Stedsturer has always been on his uncle KKB's side in the political game too. He even visited KKB when he was down in exile in Danzig between one of his many terms as King of Sweden.
1: So he already has strong political credentials when he steps onto the stage for real after his uncle's death. KKB did have a son called Karl, but he's very young, probably not even 10. So he and his mother are quickly outmaneuvered by Stan Sture, who KKB had named as the executor of his will. So instead of the son getting any power or influence, Stenstorre makes sure that KKB's two remaining daughters, who are adults at this point, get most of their father's inheritance. He likely sees them as less strong competition, since they're women. And one of them is also married to a member of the influential Axelsson-Tott family, Just like Stan Sture himself is, so there's family connections there.
0: Yeah, so he's directly and indirectly helping himself. Yes. And when it comes to securing political power, now KKB is dead, Stenstura moves fast. Already the day after the death, he announces himself as commander of Stockholm Castle and says that the old king had ordered him to take over the throne. A few weeks later, he goes even further and proclaims himself commander of Stockholm, Urebru, and Orbul castles and also regent of the kingdom. And many historians have described Stenstura's actions as a ...occurring under coup-like circumstances.
1: Yeah, I'd say. He doesn't wait for the council to assemble or any interaction with the rest of the Kalmar Union to occur, he just shouts, I'm regent, and runs with it. Uh, Yet the council don't seem to protest too much.
0: The Swedish council, does
1: Exactly. Perhaps they think Sten is as good a regent as any, and with him in place so quickly, that prevents King Christian down in Denmark from moving in and enforcing the agreement that the Swedish council had agreed to, namely that Christian's son, Hans, was the heir to the throne.
0: Either way, in practice, not much changes on a day-to-day life, because... uh, KKB was at war with Denmark and Stensdora basically inherits that war and the fighting between King Christian and the Danes and the Swedes who don't want to see uh, Stensdora or KKB in power, that is still continuing and it's only really occasionally interspersed with unsuccessful peace negotiations like last 200 or so years it's like oh should we have a peace treaty oh it either doesn't work or it lasts for seven months and then we fight again and this is basically what's gonna keep going even though Stan is now in charge instead of KKB. But in the summer of 1471, a peaceful solution is actually closer than it has been in quite a long time. Perhaps this is somewhat aided by the fact that Sweden now has a new archbishop, a man by the name of Jakob Ulfsson. And he is loyal to the Uxumfräna faction of Swedish nobility, although he's not actually related to them. And as we hopefully remember from the last time around, the Oxenfranas were always enemies of KKB, and so they're not too keen on Sten Sture taking over after him. Instead, they're more willing to actually see Christian take the throne of Sweden and complete the Kalmar Union, and that archbishop seems to mainly want this. He wants a peaceful return to the complete Kalmar Union, with a king on all three thrones.
1: At this point, secret negotiations between Danish representatives and Sten Sture and other members of the Swedish council take place at Kungseter. The proposed agreement is to make Christian king of Sweden and bring back the Kalmar Union as it once was. But, and this is crucial, Christian would be king on much the same premise as Christopher of Bavaria was. This would have meant that Christian would have to curtail his powers a lot more than he himself seemed to have wanted, and a lot more power would rest with the Swedish council.
0: Yeah, if we remember back to King Chris, that glorious reign, and we called it glorious at the time, but I was reading a new history book about uh, sort of like the prologue to the 1500s, and uh, that author as well called uh, King Christopher's reign, the golden era of the Kalmar Union, so uh, we were right.
1: Yeah, I I know we were, but I also think you're very much milking this because you were way too happy to have a namesake king in Swedish history.
0: Yeah, well, you're just jealous. There's no Queen Orsa yet. Yeah, yet. So yeah, this proposal is being drafted, but before it's put to the king, Stenstura seems to have gotten cold feet, and by mid-August he's travelling around, going to places like Arboga and Vardstena, actually drumming up support for a military solution to the conflict, to kick King Christian and the Danes out of Sweden once and for all. Maybe Stenstura realised that any deal with the king would result in him losing his power and status as regent, although you know that's pretty obvious. And it was also likely that he and his supporters feared that they'd be outmaneuvered by pro-union factions of the nobility and the council if it ever came to negotiating the deal with himself so it's not even just losing his position as regent but more long-term him and his allies losing power in both Sweden and the Kalmar Union so he's uh, worried about this.
1: Perhaps realizing what Sten is up to, Christian wants to go ahead and settle the conflict with the Swedes once and for all. And so he sails to Stockholm with 5,000 men on 70 ships, including many of Germany's finest knights that he's rented as mercenary soldiers. As tends to be the case with mercenary soldiers, uh, they are experienced, well-trained and effective warriors but they cost a lot of money.
0: Yeah, so you don't just do this on the off chance that the peace negotiations might fail. You do this because you've completely given up on the peace negotiations. And one cool thing is Christian's forces also include a mortar he's renting from Lubeck, plus a giant cannon called Moses.
1: Do you think you could rent a mortar these days? I've I've only ever rented cars. I've never looked into renting cannons or mortars
0: yeah just ask like hurts it's like <laughs> i know we had that uh, hybrid five seat car last week but actually can we have a 15th century mortar please <laughs> we're going down to grips holmes lot it would be very fun but somewhat doubt it now, with Christian is the Danish mask, a man called Klaus Reno, who was in command, but uh, not exactly a military genius, which is a great quote from historian Ulf Sunbe. And Like so many attacks on Stockholm, though, the fleet manages to get all the way there and uh, arrives unmolested and is able to disgorge its land forces by Jurgården, the area of town here. And Christian begins to siege the city before the Swedes counter-attack. And it's essentially still just the part of the city which is on the island, which is now called the Old Town or Gamla Stan. So if you're looking at a map, it's actually a very small part of modern-day Stockholm that this fight is concerned about.
1: Sten Sture realizes what is happening when the ships are first sighted on the 10th of July, and so he leaves the city to go and gather an army. And he leaves a general called Knut Posse in charge of the defense of Stockholm and Tregrunner Castle, or just Stockholm Castle. And this is something Christian cannot take without a proper siege. There might have been tentative attempts at solving the situation through negotiations, but everyone knows this is going to end in a battle. Nils Sture, if you remember, influential nobleman in Sweden at the time, but he's not related to Stan Sture. He goes to get the levies and soldiers from Dalarna, which have been proving themselves to be superior warriors in many revolt and war recently.
0: Yeah, this is the area of Sweden you go to for help with uh, something's going on. Meanwhile, Christian hears that Stensturer and his people are running around the country gathering more support for this fight, so he decides to act. He's come all the way to Stockholm personally this time, and he's not going to leave without the Swedish crown on his head. So he actually calls a meeting with the Swedish Stender, and the Stender are the estates, or the four classes of society that exist in Sweden. And they're the nobility, the church, the merchants, or the burghers, and the farmers. As opposed to the council meetings that consisted of only nobility and a few bishops and high clergymen, these national meetings of the estates are in some ways early forerunners to a parliament in the way that they're meant to represent everyone in the country. But they're definitely not democratically elected assemblies. And we talked about the first time when this might have happened. I think that was during KKB's reign where he went to somewhere. I think it was probably Arbuga. Yeah. It always tends to be there. Um, and that was when the when people say it might be the first. Swedish Parliament because it was the first time these four groups of society meet, and so Christian takes a leaf out of that book and does the same thing, and he wants to gather these people so he can force them to elect him king. But in the end, very few representatives of these four uh, groups of people show up, and so in fact, so few show up that it's blatantly obvious that any decision they make there won't have any legitimacy. They're looking around, saying Bjorn, where's everyone else? Is like, oh, uh, they said me, sorry bye. <laughs> and that's all of it.
1: So when that fails, the king instead calls a thing in Uppsala and makes that thing proclaim him king. But that's also a small, rather regional event that also doesn't seem to help him get any real legitimacy in his attempt to take the crown. Instead, he seems to realise that the only option left is to engage in open battle.
0: Yeah, that would be like if I went to the UK and got Brighton City Council to proclaim me as king. Like, yeah, okay, the body in itself is a legitimate, like, body, but it has nothing to do with claiming the crown of the country.
1: That's a quite a good modern-day comparison, actually. So, instead, Christian's troops begin to construct some siege-work fortifications on the top of a hill called Brunkeberg, where he places his artillery, Maybe he rolls uh, Moses the cannon and and the rented mortar from Lübeck up the hill and puts them in place as well.
0: And then he probably has to get his soldiers to read the instruction book for the rented mortar because it's the first time. He's like, is this the first time you've rented a mortar from us? (laughs) If so, follow this easy checklist to get it going.
1: I, I now have an image in my head where they like scan a QR code on the mortar and they get up like an instruction video. Yeah. But the instruction video is in German, so they don't understand it. Oh, that's so not what happened. Snell,
0: schützen sie Button. Ja, genau.
1: Anyway, back to what really happened. Brunkeberg Hill was a great place to set up camp as they would have a good field of fire for Moses the cannon and other artillery that they have and there are actually few houses and farms around. This is totally different from what the area looks like today because today where Brunkeberg Hill was is pretty much the city centre of modern day Stockholm. They've even pretty much leveled the hill at this point to make it easier for modern-day Stockholm inhabitants to walk around. The Danes also construct a bridge between Normalm, where Brünkeberg is, and Köplingholmen, which is a separate island, to help with access to part of the fleet that they have moved to Shepplingholm and closer to the city rather than out on Jurgon.
0: And everyone knows Christian needs to be crowned before winter because he can't afford anything that takes any longer than that. His troops cost a lot of money and his food reserves were going to quickly run out too if he's just hanging around outside Stockholm. So both sides gather their forces and begin to organise for this battle. In the beginning of November, Sten Sture is approaching Stockholm with his men. More and more start to join the army, as by now the harvest has been collected, which is really important, because that meant all the people working on the harvest can now fight, and so they flock to the army from the nearby counties. He even gets reinforcements of some knights, up to maybe 1,300 of them, all in gleaming armour, ready to fight. And there's one last attempt at peace negotiations, probably just more for show than anything else, And as he approaches Stockholm, it's time for battle.
1: This is the Battle of Brunkeberg, Slaget vid Brunkeberg in Swedish. The Swedish forces are laid out before the hill of Bunker Bay at dawn on the 10th of October. The Swedes observe the Danish field works and realize they probably outnumber the Danes two to one. Numbers are always a bit sketchy, but the Swedes uh, probably had about 6,000 men, some people say as many as 10,000. But the Danes, of course, have a lot of these German mercenaries uh, who are well-trained, but they also have a number of Swedish noblemen fighting for them who wants to see Christian on the throne. Some of the peasantry of Sweden are also on Christian's side, as... During the preparations for the battle, Christian had been able to visit Uppland and convince the people there that he was the man to back. Uh, Remember, he got that thing in Uppsala to proclaim him king.
0: Yeah, so when he was there, he grabbed six or seven men to say, oh, come and join me and make me look more legit. But now let's look a little bit more at the battlefield and where these troops are laid out because we're actually able to follow pretty much what happened. So it's a good idea to have a good image of what the battlefield is going to look like. So you have the hill of Brunke Bay in the middle of the map. Stenstura is to the west of the hill, which is north of the Gamla Stan and the city of Stockholm. Both of these areas are north of the current city. So basically, if you look at Stockholm, there's land in the north, then there's the one island of the old town in the middle, and then there's more land in the south. Like, it's a bit more complicated than that, but for this battle, you just need to look like that. It's basically a burger. You've got the bread on the top, which is... um, where the main battle is, there's the old town in the middle, which is the meat, and then there's the land, uh, the south of the city, at the bottom, which is the other piece of the bun. The Danes have their ships on this a small island, which is the, to the south of the hill, but north of the old town, so there's like a mini, mini piece of like onion between the, the burger and the bread, and that is where the Danes have their ships, and a small group of their men guarding that bridge. And they also have a small force by the Clara Kloster, which is a church and monastery to the southwest of the hill, but still on the land side north of the city. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, if you don't follow Chris's excellent burger analogy, you can also think of it like a clock. The Danes are at 12 o'clock. The Swedes are positioned at 9 o'clock, with Stockholm at the time, the old town, at 6 And then the Danish fleet are at five, and a small Danish force are at seven. Uh, That's sort of how it's laid out.
0: Sten has a cunning plan which involves not one, not two, but three separate attacks on the Danish forces from three separate directions. He attempts to attack Brunkeby Hill from the west, whilst Neil Sturer comes round the other side and attacks with his forces from the east, as his men are coming a different way to Stockholm, so they don't have to go the same way as uh, Stan Sturer. Whilst these two forces are attacking... Knut Possa, the commander of Stockholm, will break out from the city and cross the bridge to attack the Danes from the south with the men that he has inside the city guarding the city. So these three will all come together to surround the Danes and crush them. Now, we've mentioned that the Swedish army, whilst having some knights and some trained soldiers, mainly consists of these peasants who have been coming to join the battle after the harvest, so you'd assume that these must be weaker and not as strong as the well-paid and trained German knights. But this plan of attack, including three separate moving parts, which ask for the Swedes to attack uphill against Danes who are entrenched in fortifications that they built and who have artillery, That's not what you would expect an untrained and weak peasant army to do. That would just turn into a massacre. Normally, the peasant armies, they like ambushes and occasionally big battles in the field. They're not used to attacking well-defended professional troops uphill. This has led historians to suggest that the Swedish farmer army of the time was actually very well trained in the art of modern warfare and must have had exercises or experiences of these kinds of formations and maneuvers and they definitely need a strong group of officers or leaders. So this isn't typical for a farmer army and so maybe that's why Christian didn't expect this type of attack to happen when it did.
1: At 11 a.m. Sten Sturet leads his main force up the west hillside in a frontal attack. His men are flying the banner of St. George and the Dragon, St. Jöran och Draken, as they charge forward. The Swedes take fire from 200 cannons and other hand-held weapons before close combat begins.
0: Yeah, because we're now so far in the timeline, people have almost... They're kind of like giant like whale gun type things. They're they're like handheld cannons, which is what they're called in the sources. And so they're like a big rifle that takes you, you know, ages to reload. So it's not just like big cannons you have to roll out, but there's uh, a lot of the Danish soldiers have these rifles, basically.
1: The fact that the Swedish force doesn't break at this point is another indication of their combat discipline. They must be disciplined to take this and not retreat. Interestingly, the Danish knights and soldiers then advance out of their defences and are fighting their way away from their protection. They have left their protective defence to engage the Swedes in hand to hand combat. Normally, you would expect the Danes to use their protection to their advantage in the battle, but perhaps they wanted to attack immediately after the cannon salvo. When the battle rises to a crescendo, that's when Knut Posse attacks from Stockholm, like Chris explained before, he breaks out of the city and comes to the battlefield from the south. Knud Posse's troops managed to set fire to the Danish defences that they had built to stop troops advancing from the city. Posse's force then managed to break out to head towards the Abbey that we talked about, to the west, going towards seven o'clock on that clock map we have in our heads, Uh, they also send a few men to slip away from the fight to secretly try and destroy the bridge that the Danes had built out to Schöplingeholmen, where their fleet was.
0: Yeah, so there's some going out to the west uh, at seven o'clock, but there's also a few men going out to the east, the southeast, uh, at five o'clock. And they're interrupted in their sabotage there, though, and the bridge isn't completely destroyed. But they have managed to get a start on it, and it seems to be damaged a bit, but they're not really sure. They have to leg it pretty quickly. Despite the two-pronged attack that's now attacking the Danes on the hill, the Danes soon get the upper hand in the fighting. Christian is fighting personally and potentially even manages to seriously wound Knut Posse in single combat. Or Knut Posse is hit by arrows in close combat or, yeah, something happens. The Danish forces then pushed back the Swedes' main force and the Stockholm garrison, although the men from Stockholm keep a hold of a small beachhead in front of the Danish defences, so they're still on the mainland. They haven't been pushed back to the city all the way, but they're generally retreating.
1: Again, this is normally the point where a peasant army would have been completely defeated. They could not complete a tactical retreat and reform for another attack, or recover from being overwhelmed by an enemy attack like this. But Steenstoren manages it with his army this time, and the Swedes organize at the bottom of the hill and turn around and attempt to storm the Danish defenses once more. This again proves how effective and well-trained the peasant army is, and their commanders must have been, because this is an impressive military feat for an army of this type. The Swedes attack the west side of the hill again, and fighting resumes on the very ridge of the hill.
0: And this time it's Christian who's hit in close combat in the mouth by a shot from a hand cannon, and needs to be carried away from the battlefield. And this might be fanciful, as it comes from the Stensturer Chronicle, which is going to be written a bit later on, but it might actually be true. Examination of Christian's remains show that he actually had three front teeth missing, and if he did get hit in the mouth by a handgun, this would explain this. And Despite their king being shot in the face, the Danes continue to fight well, though, and Stensturer must give the order to retreat once more as the fighting on the hill turns against him. Now during this retreat, a Danish commander called Trotter Carlson takes off his helmet for some reason, and he's hit in the face, but he dies immediately. And the Swedish uh, marksmen are either extremely lucky or very good at picking their targets. They've hit two Danish commanders in the face now.
1: Yeah, he perhaps took off his helmet when sitting down to rest, but we're not sure. We have mentioned cannons before now, but by now, like Chris said, soldiers can use them as giant rifles that you need to lean on something to make sure that the recoil doesn't completely destroy the user. They look a bit like giant Pringles tubes, if you're familiar with that particular brand of crisps. And so they're like giant Pringles tubes mounted on the end of an even longer stick. Uh, These are now very common on the battlefield and were used by both sides in this battle. So now three things happen at the same time and it gets a bit confusing. Sten does manage to gather his men for an implausible third time, and so starts a third attack on the hill. At the same time, the Danish mask, Klaus Rönnow, believes that the battle has been won after the second Swedish retreat, so he orders his men down from the hill to chase Sten men and finally destroy the Swedes.
0: At the same time as this counterattack, some of the Danish forces who'd been kept to the side by the Clara Kloster at uh, 7 o'clock also advanced on the Swedes from the south. The three forces then engage each other in close combat in one big blob and the Swedes have to fight extremely bravely. One part of Stensturer's men, however, managed to get around and attack the northern part of the Brunkabye hill and defeat the few Danes that had been left there to guard their defences. Whilst this is happening, Nils Sturer finally arrives with his Swedish reinforcements and attacks the Danish defences from the east, thus finally completing Stenstura's original plan to attack the Danes from three directions. It doesn't take long before the Danes have to retreat in the face of these combined attacks, and ironically, the only way for them to go is back up the hill to the original defences that Nilsstörer's men now hold.
1: If we like to believe fanciful stories, at this point, a bright sword was then seen in the sky, which the Swedes believe was a sign that God and Saint Erik was showing them the way. Before too long, the Danes realise all is lost, and they start to panic and wildly flee down to their fleet at Köplingholmen. But it is now that the garrison commander of Stockholm, Knut Posse, and his men's work come into effect. The Danes used the bridge that Knut Posse's men had damaged a bit uh, at the start of the battle, and when the heavy knights and soldiers all try to use it as once, the bridge collapses, and the way out for the Danes ceases to exist uh, because this was the only way they had to retreat to their fleet.
0: The Swedish Styra Chronicle claims that all those who weren't killed were taken captive. Another chronicle says that the Danes lost 2,000 dead and prisoners, with 600 of the dead drowning in the bridge collapse. The Swedes say that there were 2,000 dead and 630 Danish prisoners, and in addition to Trotter Carlson, the commander who was shot in the face, another Danish nobleman died in the battle too. Christian, though, managed to get back to his fleet because he was, you know, carried there after he was shot in the face, and the catastrophe impacts harshly on the survivors who made it out with him. Many of the knights couldn't admit that they'd lost to a peasant army in a real battle, and at the same time they couldn't find any reason why they'd lost. Uh, It wasn't an obvious case of treason or betrayal, so there must have been some other reason why they managed to lose so comprehensively. They couldn't just give credit to Stenstorer's good plan and well-disciplined army, so naturally they just blamed dark magic and claimed that the Swedes had the devil on their side. You know, normal stuff.
1: Yeah, the Swedes, on the other hand, said that they had St. Joran or St. George, to help them and praised their banners which had led the way. Stenstorer orders a sculpture of St. George and the Dragon by a Lübeck artist called Bert Nord to commemorate the victory. Originally intended to be his grave ornament, it's placed in the Sturkirkan, the main church in Stockholm, a decade and a half later, and now you can go and see it in Gamla Stån. If you're ever in Stockholm, we recommend you go have a look at it. Uh, it's uh, just out in public uh, on a little tiny square. It's like a sculpture on top of a pillar. I think St George looks like he's about five years old on this sculpture, sitting on the back of the dragon, and he doesn't really look like a mighty dragon slayer. So yeah, go see if you agree with me if you have a chance. Now whilst the Battle of Bunker Bay is dramatic, and it's undoubtedly a masterly Swedish victory, there is reason to be sceptical about the sources of the battle the main sources are written a long time after the battle. Historian sven Ulrich Palme says for example that winning after three failed attempts is a classic piece of literary writing and he is also skeptical about the story of the death of de Karlsson. Yet the evidence on Christian's body indicates that he was indeed shot in the mouth. So, Who knows? There's probably a bit of both in the stories of the battle.
0: Either way, as you said, this was a masterly win for the Swedes right when they needed it. Although, like we said before, it, saying it was just Swedes fighting the Danes is a bit of an oversimplification. There were Swedes and Danes on both sides in this fight, but one was commanded by Swedes, Sten Sturer and his gang, and the other was commanded by a Dane, King Christian. Or, well, technically he was actually born in Germany, but let's not complicate things too far. <laughs> More than being a battle between Swedes and Danes, this was a battle between the Kalmar Union, or like within the Kalmar Union, with the king at the helm and a faction of Swedish nobility and peasantry that was anti-union, led by Sten Sture on the other side. And yeah, he had assistance from other people like Knut Posse and Nils Sture.
1: Over the years, historians have debated what made Swedish people end up on one side or the other of this conflict earlier historians agreed that it was largely a matter of where people's business interests lay. The peasants in Dalarna were anti-union and so fought on Sten Sture's side because their main source of income came from the mining industry, which was dependent on trade with places outside of the Kalmar Union. So they were better off if Sweden was a stronger player outside of the Union and not forced to be within the Union and have tax money from the mines going towards things that mainly concerned Denmark or Norway. The peasants in Uppland, on the other hand, or members of the border nobility, they had their main source of income in farming products, for which it was more beneficial to stay within the Union. However, today, historians are more and more revising that theory and instead suggesting that which side you aligned yourself with had more to do with your family connections and alliances. Either way, just so you're aware, there is a discussion that's ongoing amongst scholars of Scandinavian medieval history.
0: Indeed, and that's what makes it so interesting. Its uh, Thoughts and ideas are changing all the time. And shortly after the battle, though, Sten sends out a proclamation saying that a battle had been won against the enemies of Sweden, uh, even though, like we said, there were Swedish noblemen and peasants on both sides. But that doesn't stop Sten from using this narrative in his propaganda going forward. Swedish noblemen fighting for Christian, who were captured, have their lands and titles taken away from them by Sten Sture, but they are allowed to keep their personal wealth, so you can keep your bag of money, but we're taking your castle and your, uh, your farm. Council members who fought for Christian, though, got to keep their position on the Swedish council. So in that sense, Stenster is definitely not acting like his uncle KKB, who would have probably just murdered everyone. And there are changes locally, though, as the Council of Stockholm bans foreigners from being part of their council. Remember, previously there's been a lot of Germans in these Swedish trading towns taking positions of authority on the Stockholm City Council and the Kalmar City Council, and so that's coming to an end now.
1: This was seen as Steensture rewarding the local Swedish peasantry, but also that trading mercantile business class of burghers who were aiding him. They didn't rebel and try and give over Stockholm when Christian arrived, which we have seen on a few occasions previously. So this is a positive reaction to the victory of Sten It is also another example of Sten using this to push forward some of his nationalistic narrative in the sense of Sweden being independent and uh, without foreign influence. In the bigger picture of relations between Sweden and Denmark, Sweden says now we're willing to negotiate for a peace treaty if Denmark returns Kalmar, Boyholm and Stockholm castles, which they do, and a peace agreement is signed in 1472 at a meeting in Kalmar. They agree there will be peace between the two kingdoms for all the time to come. Uh, now, where have we heard that before?
0: Only 737 times before. And there are a number of other things they agreed on apart from just peace. Confiscated property taken from the nobility on various sides of the borders were to be returned. The borders were to be open for all trade and all people, and the border nobility could continue to manage estates in all three kingdoms and cross the border for work and trade.
1: All three countries promised to aid each other if attacked by external enemies or internal rebellion. In a way, they agree on a sort of Kalmar Union light with some of the aspects of the original Union idea left intact, but others taken away. But the one thing that Sten Sture and the Swedes say no to is Christian being king of Sweden. And there isn't really much that Christian can do about this at this point. However, at the same time, Sten Sture is being astute enough to not go as far as proclaiming himself king and challenge Christian outright.
0: Yeah, so Stenstura is going to remain regent. And after the Battle of Bay and the peace treaty in Kalmar, Sweden is a calmer country in the sense of grand politics. Christian still wants to be king of Sweden deep down, but realises it's just not going to happen right now. Stenstura remains regent, and he shows the intention of preserving the Kalmar Union, at least in spirit, as long as Christian doesn't get any delusions of grandeur. On the other hand, Stenstører is never powerful enough to break away from the Union completely, even if he wanted to, and so that's why he sticks with being regent and not calling himself king. Domestically in Sweden, there are no more open battles between the factions of clergy and regular nobility and high nobility. As Stenstura grows stronger in the 1470s, though, he realises it's not easy to rule Sweden, even if there's no big major conflicts going on. He didn't really have any major influence over the castle counties, who were all owned and run by separate people. This was especially the case down south, as the border nobility was essentially autonomous down in the regions near Denmark, just like the noblemen with large estates in Finland were, who they themselves paid for the upkeep of increased defences. Against Russian attacks, so they're doing this without the support from back in Stockholm because they just do it themselves and remain quite independent.
1: But Stein Storet was also smart. He knew better than to fall into the same trap as KKB, Christian, and other recent figures had fallen into because he did not raise taxes. He did the classic, you remember... uh, George Bush. George Bush, read my lips, no new taxes. But unlike uh, old uh, Bush senior, who actually then went ahead and increased taxes, Sten stuck to his word. He made sure to make do with the income the crown got from existing taxes and from minings and fines and that regular type of income. This really was smart. I mean, how many peasant rebellions have happened because of taxes? So many. It's the one thing that gets uh, the Swedish peasantry going in uh, the Middle Ages or the 1400s. If the crown or country needed more money, Sten simply provided it from his own personal wealth. He was increasingly using the same old corrupt methods of extortion, political violence and other ways of enriching himself that we've seen over the century. And so he was a very wealthy man himself and he could afford to uh, lend the country some money.
0: Yeah, and if he needed more money, he just took it from other people or extorted people, or whatever, anything to not raise taxes. Maybe George Bush should have done that. He should have started selling Senate positions and, uh, you know, giving people jobs as Secretary of the Navy for a couple of billion dollars.
1: Or not, because this is deeply, deeply corrupt and makes for a very unstable country. Quite right. I don't think anyone should take a page out of how Sweden was ruled in the 15th century if they want to create a strong and stable and democratic country, because uh, those were three things that Sweden was not. (laughs)
0: That's very true.
1: A small note from 1473, uh, goldsmiths in Stockholm became in charge of goldsmiths all over middle Sweden. Uh, So that was very nice for the goldsmiths. And the following year, the Shoemakers Guild was inaugurated. Uh, These are all very sort of medieval type events. There are a lot of uh, guilds and trade uh, assemblies being established
0: for the next few years there's a bit of back and forth between Denmark and Sweden about getting Christian as king of Sweden but you know they're not really doing it properly it doesn't amount to much mainly it's the Swedish nobleman who whilst they might have been happy to uh, re-establish the Kalmar Union in a sense they were just getting used to living without a king The high nobility was running the country in reality through the council, and they were now well and truly invested in keeping it that way. Unless they could make a deal with Christian that meant they would keep most of their power, but Christian wasn't interested in making that deal. So everybody was just happy keeping it as it was for the next couple of years.
1: But like you said, ideas keep going back and forth, and in 1476 there is a new meeting in Kalmar. Sweden and Denmark actually agree to terms for Sweden taking back Christian as king, but it would severely curtail the king's power in Sweden and strengthen the high nobility, or make sure that they retained the power they had until that point. The fact that Christian was willing to accept this is quite surprising, but he does really want to be king of Sweden, so he's happy to submit to the demands of the high nobility. However, there's a slight snag.
0: Indeed, because the following year the four Swedish estates meet to ratify the agreement and get it all signed and delivered that this meeting of the estates reject the deal and they reject Christian as king. This is mainly because of the objections from the burghers of Stockholm and other merchants, but also by peasants from various parts of the country. Now there are rumours that Stan Sturger was behind this, He could have been directly part of this decision influencing it behind the scenes and directly telling people vote against this or it could have been an indirect consequence because for the last seven, eight years or so he's been going around giving out anti-Christian propaganda. He's he's been influencing people to say no to Christian for so long that it could potentially be quite hard for him to then say one day oh actually let's just take Christian back. It's been building up for so long and so then the peasants and the burglaries and the merchants just say no.
1: Rejecting the deal meant rejecting Christian, who was humiliated. The Swedish estates probably felt emboldened as they would have known that Christian did not have enough forces or cash to invade again. But Christian didn't just sit still. He went to one route that was open to him to get back at Stenstyrre, he sent a communique to the Pope to have Sten excommunicated, and that's exactly what happens. Officially, the reason is not having honoured his financial obligations to the dowager Queen Dorothea, but it was a personal thing. The Pope agreed and excommunicated him, and in response, Sten sent his own delegation to Rome and managed to convince the Pope to undo the decision and welcome him back to the church so it all worked out for standstill in the end
0: yeah but for a brief time he's excommunicated which isn't very nice In the same year, 1477, we see the Pope getting involved because we see the founding of Uppsala University. This, you know, been planned for a long time but could only become official once the Pope said yes and he gave his approval on the 27th of February in 1477. So Sweden now has its first university and in fact Uppsala becomes the first university in the Nordics. There had previously been attempts to establish a university in Sweden, including by old king Erika Pororania, back way, way before this, but none had actually taken off and gotten off the ground. And the man that really makes this happen is Archbishop Jakob Ulfsson, And he uses the Swedish successes at the Battle of Brunke Bay to push the issue of a university up the political agenda. And Christian had actually been busy trying to establish a university in Copenhagen, but this opened two years later in 1479.
1: (laughs) So, this is Sweden giving the academic middle finger to Christian, so to say, and beating him to having the first Scandinavian university, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah,
0: it's very funny. Um, uh, I bet Uppsala University to this very day still has one over Copenhagen for that very reason. <laughs>
1: Obviously Sweden and the Nordics in general are late comers to the academic game. The university in Bologna in Italy, which is often credited as being the oldest university in the world, was founded as early as the 1080s. And universities in Paris, Prague, Oxford, Cambridge and many other places in Europe have all been around for centuries by now.
0: Yeah, we've seen a few people in the political game now have travelled to various places, mainly in Germany, but I think one guy went to Prague as well.
1: Yeah, and even though we now have a university, there isn't really a rush of students to join the first ever Freshers' Week. Most educational needs were still of a very practical nature and they were taught either in the local communities or through the various merchant and craftsmen's guilds. Still, the founding of Uppsala University meant that young Swedish men who wanted to pursue an academic path and particularly advance to higher positions in the church no longer had to go and live abroad for years on end like what Chris said they'd done before, although many still continued to favour universities on the continent over Uppsala.
0: Indeed, the activity at Uppsala University would sort of ebb and flow for the first hundred years or so, and it's not really until the late 1590s that we see it grow and expand. For now, it's a relatively small affair, with a focus being on teaching and discussion, mainly of philosophy and theology. And it might have gotten off to a modest start, but it's definitely endured. Uppsala University is absolutely still around today and welcomes around 50,000 students and 5,000 researchers to pursue their academic interests there each year. And over the years, it's been the home of prestigious alumni such as Carl von Linnae, or Linnaeus, who invented the modern system of naming organisms, and Anders Celsius, from who we get the Celsius temperature scale, plus the current king and current prime minister of Sweden.
1: I just have to say that Celsius really is the best temperature scale. I mean, sorry if you use Fahrenheit, but the Celsius scale rules.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, I didn't know you cared so much, but definitely Celsius is a lot better. Um, But yeah, we don't want people who support Fahrenheit or even Kelvin to get angry at us. Now, the Battle of Brunkeberg and the founding of Uppsala University were the final two major political blows of the war between Sten Sturer and Christian, because King Christian died in May 1481 at the age of 55, ten years after his defeat, which permanently derailed his ambitions of being king of Sweden.
1: Yeah, he's gone And with that, so is this episode, because I think it's uh, time to start rounding off. Uh, There's uh, been a few developments on the Eastern Front uh, in in Finland and along the border with Russia, but we think we'll save those for the next episode.
0: Yeah, so we'll return in two weeks' time, but we'll very quickly read out a lovely five-star review we've got on Apple Podcasts, which is called Making History Come to Life. Hosts, Orson and Chris have a lovely chemistry and gentle sense of humour while still being serious about the history. Every episode is packed with information but delivered in a breezy style that makes it easy to listen to as well as absorbing. Highly recommend this deep dive into Sweden's fascinating past and how that has shaped the modern country and people we recognise today. Thank you for making it. And that's from Tony Trowell on uh, the Australian Apple podcast. So thank you so much, Tony.
1: Yeah, thank you, Tony. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you again in two weeks' time.
0: We will. And uh, please leave a review. Follow us on uh, social media, on our various places. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Hey there. Bye-bye. But uh, now it's time to head a little bit further back than emigrating to America and pick up our timeline in the 1940s. Or forty yeah, seven. well, that would be a bit weird.
1: Please, our German listeners, forgive Christians. Christians? Christians.
0: Yeah, Christian e <laughs> German because he can't yeah. read the QR code on his new mortar.
1: <laughs> and Chris's attempt at speaking German.